The best address in Bath is how the Times describes number one Royal Crescent. The address is the first building on the eastern end of the Royal Crescent, built in the 18th century. The curved row of terrace houses has significant architectural and historical importance and is safeguarded by the Bath Preservation Trust. Number one Royal Crescent belongs to the Trust and is decorated and furnished as it might have been between 1776 and 1796. Open to the public six days a week, visitors can learn about life in Georgian Bath, including the differences between upper and lower classes. The Royal Crescent was built by John Wood the Younger, 1728-81 between 1767 and 1774. It was probably designed by Wood's father, John Wood the Elder, 1704-54, who planned many other buildings in Bath before his death, including Queen Square and the Circus. Both men were known for constructions that defied usual geometric architecture in favor of curved lines, such as the crescent shape of the Royal Crescent. The grandeur of the terraced houses made the Royal Crescent a fashionable address. It was also the first crescent-shaped terrace of townhouses in Europe, which made it all the more appealing to the upper classes. The houses were rented out to many notable people, including Prince Frederick, Duke of York, 1763-1827, and his wife, Princess Frederica Charlotte of Prussia, 1767-1820. The royal couple frequently visited Bath and stayed at number 16 when in the city. The first resident of number one Royal Crescent was Henry Sanford, 1751-1814, a landowner and future baron from Ireland. Details in his commonplace books record some of the goings-on in the Crescent, including wild parties at number 30 that frequently got out of hand. Sanford's commonplace books, of which two survive, are held in the National Library of Ireland. As a widower, he left his Irish estates in the capable hands of his sons and moved to Bath to take advantage of the healing properties of the waters. According to the Bath Journal, Sanford passed away in February 1796 and was buried in St. Swithin's Church in the parish of Walcott. Several residents passed through Number 1 Royal Crescent during the following century, including Eliza Evans, who ran a school for young ladies between the ages of 11 and 15. At the beginning of the 20th century, the property became a lodging house run by Stephen and Elizabeth Thomas and family until it was divided into two properties in 1967. One of the lodgers at the house was George Sainsbury, 1845-1933, a highly influential critic and literary historian. He moved into rooms on the ground floor in 1916, which were originally the servants' quarters, after retiring as Regis Professor of Rhetoric and English Literature at the University of Edinburgh. Sainsbury wrote on a range of literary topics and was close friends with other authors, including Rudyard Kipling, 1865-1936, and Robert Louis Stevenson, 1850-94. Whilst living in Bath, Sainsbury wrote notes on a cellar book, 1920, filled with tasting notes, menus, and robust opinions about wine. Sainsbury was a keen wine connoisseur who inspired the French wine merchant André Simon, 1877-1970, to set up the Sainsbury Club in 1933 in his honor. The Sainsbury Club continues to meet today in Napa Valley, California, where a vineyard was also named after Sainsbury. Following Sainsbury's death, the Bath Preservation Trust began campaigning for the protection of historic buildings in the city. The Royal Crescent is one of several important residences in Bath, but it was not until 1967 that someone came up with the idea of turning number one Royal Crescent into a museum for posterity. The man with a vision was Bernard Kayser, 1914-81, a man of some wealth who supported the trust and their work. 
Unfortunately, the sale only included the upper wings of the house, making the servants' quarters a separate dwelling. Restoration and refurbishment began in 1968, gradually restoring the building to its original 18th-century appearance. This involved removing partitions and raising the level of the first-floor windows. Kayser established a house committee to oversee the interior design of the rooms. Members included Philip Jebb, 1927-95, a restorer of Georgian buildings, and Peter Thornton, 1925-2007, the keeper of furniture and woodwork at the Victoria and Albert Museum and a curator at the Sir John Soane's Museum. Only the main rooms, including the dining room, library, and one bedroom, were given Georgian furnishings, the others were converted into offices or flats. The restored rooms were eventually opened to the public as a museum on 20 June 1970. In 2006, number 1A Royal Crescent came on the market, and the Bath Preservation Trust jumped at the chance to purchase it and reunite it with the rest of the property. With the help of a local philanthropist, Andrew Brownsword, born 1947, who made his money by establishing the Forever Friends Teddy Bear Company, the trust bought the property. Between 1968 and 2006, knowledge of Georgian interiors had increased significantly, and the designs of the rooms in the museum were not historically correct. Instead of only refurbishing the servant quarters to their Georgian roots, the trust decided to give the museum a complete makeover and open more rooms to the public. Nicknamed the Whole Story Project, building works began in October 2012. The original courtyard, which separated the servant quarters and the rest of the house, was reintroduced, as were Venetian windows. Carpets and wallpapers were produced in Georgian styles, and a sensitive lighting system was installed. Whilst the architects and designers aimed to be faithful to 18th-century fashions, they made an exception for a modern lift to give access to all levels of the museum. Finally, the museum reopened on 21 June 2013. Visitors to No. 1 Royal Crescent are accompanied on a self-guided tour by disembodied voices belonging to imagined inhabitants of the building. Discussions range from idle gossip, preparing for an evening out and worries about a wayward sun. Additional information about each room and particular objects are accessible by scanning QR codes with a mobile phone. On the ground floor is the dining room, an essentially masculine space for entertaining guests. Decorated with family portraits, the room symbolized the host's wealth and importance in society. Wealthy families dined a la Francaise, meaning numerous dishes were placed on the table for guests to help themselves to what they desired. The food was served on elegant porcelain dining sets, which typically cost over 30 pounds, the equivalent of 2,000 pounds today. The dining table at No. 1 Royal Crescent is set for dessert. This course was another way for the host to boast of his wealth, providing his guests with expensive sweet treats and impressive sugar sculpture table decorations. Unfortunately, these luxuries came at the cost of thousands of enslaved Africans, who were forced to grow and harvest sugarcane and other commodities under the British transatlantic slave trade. The parlor was a less formal room for breakfast, tea and daily activities. Number 1 Royal Crescent furnished their parlor with a table set for the early morning meal, a bureau for letter writing and a bookcase containing the types of literature available in the Georgian era. Amongst the latter is the guide to watering and sea bathing places, which details the benefits of spas, such as the natural spring and bath. Next to the parlor is a small room known as the gentleman's retreat. Here, the man of the house could escape his family to read or study subjects of interest. Many cultured Georgians enjoyed science, the natural world and modern inventions. 
The 18th century is sometimes known as the Age of Enlightenment because explorers were discovering new things about the world and beginning to understand the workings of the universe. Several cabinets at number one Royal Crescent reflect this period of discovery, with items such as animal skulls, fossils, a globe and a replica of Edward Nairn's patent electrical machine. Ladies did not have a retreat like their husbands. Instead, their sanctum was their bedchambers. Situated on the first floor of the house, the bedroom functioned as a place to sleep and undertake their toilette. The latter involved the assistance of a maid who styled the lady's hair and applied makeup. Husbands and wives usually slept in separate rooms, so the lady was free to invite guests into her chamber. While getting dressed, friends often arrived with gossip about the goings-on in society, including the latest fashions. Of course, the bedroom was only an appropriate place to receive visitors when dressing for the day's activities. After meals, women usually headed to the withdrawing room to drink tea while the men remained in the dining room with alcoholic beverages. Eventually, the men joined the women to play card games or listen to music played on the harpsichord, usually by one of the daughters. At number one Royal Crescent, the table in the withdrawing room is set with teacups and a plate of biscuits. The teacups resemble small dishes with no handles, inspired by fashions brought over from China. There is no sugar bowl on the table, which references the anti-Saccharite movement of 1791 onwards, where women refused to put sugar in their tea in protest of the transatlantic slave trade. Since women could not vote to abolish the trade, they often found other ways to express their opinion. On the second floor, the museum has furnished one room to resemble a gentleman's bedroom. It is not too dissimilar from the ladies' bedchamber, but it is unlikely any guests visited the room. For this reason, the furnishings are less elaborate, although they still suggest significant wealth. The basement area of the house is a stark contrast to the upper levels. The kitchens of 18th-century townhouses were always downstairs in the servant quarters. Whilst the family lived in carpeted and wallpapered rooms, the servants had stone floors and bare walls. Until the 18th century, cooks were traditionally men. Large households often employed Frenchmen, believing them to be the most skilled. They were also the most expensive. During the Georgian era, smaller houses began hiring women, paying them a much lower wage. Wealthy Georgian families employed a range of staff, some who worked upstairs, such as the lady's maid, and others who worked downstairs alongside the cook. The lowest paid position was the scullery maid, who was responsible for cleaning the house and doing the laundry. She washed pots and pans, scrubbed floors, and cleaned up after the servants. In Bath, families often sent their linen elsewhere for laundering, but the scullery maid performed the occasional clothes wash. These tasks took place in the scullery, where the maid probably slept. She was generally aged between 10 and 13 and received only £2.10 shillings a year, approximately £12 today. Male servants received more money than the women, particularly the butler, who received approximately £25 per year, £2,181 today. Unlike women, men were taxed on income to fund the American War of Independence. Nonetheless, the butler also received extra rations of tea and other benefits. In houses the size of number one Royal Crescent, the butler also took on the role of footman and valet, making him the only male servant. As a footman, he would accompany his master around the city or conduct errands on his master's behalf. He also answered the door to visitors, cleaned and polished shoes and set the table for meals. The valet was the equivalent of a lady's maid and performed tasks such as maintaining his master's clothes, running his bath and so forth. The most important female servant was the housekeeper.
She was usually an older woman and received her own room, where she slept, dined and organized the household bills. Her main task was to oversee the servants and make sure everything was running smoothly. She usually answered to the mistress of the house, who gave instructions to pass on to the servants. As a salary, the housekeeper earned around £15 per year, £1,308 today, but also received extra rations of tea and sugar. Whilst the housekeeper dined alone, the rest of the servants ate in the servant hall, except for the scullery maid. The latter looked after the kitchen until the others finished eating. The servants lived by the saying waste not, want not and usually ate the remains of the food their employers did not finish. Servants were given a set of rules to follow in the servants' hall, for which they faced a forfeit if they broke. Examples included no swearing or arguing, only using their own knife and fork, and never wearing a hat inside. Each rule broken cost the servants one penny, which came out of their wages at Christmas. The way number one Royal Crescent is set out provides visitors with a sense of what it would have been like to live there. Both the rich and poor lived under one roof but had completely different lifestyles, which seem alien compared to the 21st century. It is thanks to organizations, such as the Bath Preservation Trust, that the lives, fashions and buildings of the past are available for people to explore. Number 1 Royal Crescent is open Tuesday to Sunday between 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. Tickets cost between £11 and £13 for adults, depending on the time of year. Children can visit for half the price. Pre-booked tickets are recommended. Dash. My blogs are now available to listen to as podcasts on the following platforms, Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Spotify. If you would like to support my blog, become a Patreon from pound5 slash m or buy me a coffee for three pounds. Thank you.